Well, again, good evening. You can open up in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. Now, we've talked about a number of different themes in this precious book in God's Word, and the main theme, of course, is fellowship in Christ. Now, speaking about fellowship in Christ, we know that there are conditions for fellowship. We saw that in the first part of our series of studies. Uh, We know that John had concerns about the fellowship. Last week, we finished a two-week study on the character of fellowship. We're now going to close out this series of studies by talking about the confidence of fellowship. Because, you see, we do have confidence. We have confidence in Christ. So a lot of what we're going to talk about this evening and even into next week has to do with how confident we are in Christ. How confident we are in our fellowship with Christ. How we we need not be doubting or concerned or worried about that fellowship or our ability to be in God's presence. See, it's so important that when you read this book, you don't come to the conclusion that somehow your fellowship in Christ is in, in danger or in jeopardy, but rather to come away confident that in Christ you've met the conditions for fellowship by faith. That the concerns we have for fellowship are concerns because there are many within the fellowship that don't meet those conditions for fellowship. That is, there are many within our gatherings who may not know him or may not truly believe in him. And, And that's what John's concern was about those who were false teachers and those that were trying to lead others astray. And then, of course, the character of fellowship is developed as we give our lives to Christ and as we live for Christ. We don't always exemplify that character, but of course, our faith is not based on us being perfect. Our faith is built on Christ's perfection and Christ's work in and through our lives. Amen? Well, the thing I want to talk about, and we'll just pray in a minute, but the thing I really want to talk about is the confidence that we have in our fellowship with Christ. And this evening in chapter 5, verse 1, we hope to do that very thing. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word on this stormy evening, and we ask that first of all, you just help us all stay safe and then Keep our homes protected, and as we drive, keep us safe. Be with our families and those we love. And we just ask that as we go through this time of storm and rain, that we just remember that you are the one that carry us through these things. We think of many of our, uh, our brothers and sisters and even our, our, our countrymen who are suffering the results of this hurricane in the south and Louisiana and other places, and we have a lot to be thankful for. We certainly lift them up in prayer. And now we just ask that you'd speak to our hearts and encourage us this evening Give us the confidence in our hearts that we have in your presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by looking at verses 1 through 5 in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a very poetic and wonderful way of saying that 
children of God overcome the world. We know that we have overcome the world. It may not feel like it sometimes. It may not seem like it. I mean, the world is a crazy place. There are a lot of crazy, crazy things happening in our culture today. And I think if you're like me, I've had several conversations over the last 24 hours with people, you know, reminding them that God is in control. Amen. I mean, God is in control of our world and our culture. It doesn't seem like it. And I think we all believe that if he was in control, things would be different. But he is in control. And the reason things aren't different than maybe they are or maybe the way we would like them to be is because God has ordained that things should be the way they are. And that's hard sometimes. That's a tough pill to swallow. But we know that as far as the world and the world systems, we have overcome the world. Children of God overcome the world, and they do so through obedience to his commands. You see, the world being a crazy place doesn't give us license not to be obedient. In the face of all that we're dealing with, obedience to his commands is still the same. It's still the answer. It's still how we overcome the world. We know that we're born of God, and we're born of God, as it says here in verse 1, through faith in Jesus Christ. We're born of God. We're born again by faith, by our faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that we believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah or Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel and the Savior of all mankind. We believe that. We show our love for God, the Father, by loving his children as brothers and sisters. And we talked a lot about that last week. That's how we show the world that we're his children, by loving others. But we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of mankind. And it shows by how we treat others. And we know that God's, uh, excuse me, we know that we love God's children by obeying his commands. If you have any questions about whether you're God's child, do you obey his word? Now, not perfectly. I'm not suggesting you have to walk on water. I am saying that do you love other people? Do you care for other people? Do you find God's life and love in you working through you toward others when most of us are very selfish by nature? It's very easy to be selfish. And if there's something within you, if there's the spirit of God working in you that allows you or encourages you or even empowers you to be loving toward others, that's a pretty good indication that God dwells in you by faith. Love for God and obedience to God's commands are synonymous. If you love God, you're going to obey his commands. We show our love for God and we do this through joyful obedience. It's not burdensome. If your idea of following Christ is that it's a bummer, it's burdensome, then you probably haven't come to Christ. Because while it's difficult because our flesh wars against our spirit, we know there is joy in obeying the Lord. Now, children of God overcome the world. They do so not just through obedience to his commands, but through faith in his son. It's by faith that we're able to obey. There's an obedience that comes by faith, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. There is an obedience that comes by faith. If you think and believe that you can muster enough strength in yourself to obey God, to please God, you're wrong. That's never going to happen. But if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will find the strength through the power of the Spirit to do what is impossible otherwise, and that is to obey his word. And that's how we overcome the world. Amen? Very simple concepts, but powerful thoughts. We know that we've been given the victory over the world in Christ. He tells us that there in verse 4. We know that. And we know that it's only in Christ that we've been given that victory. So, you should be encouraged. That is the confidence you can have in your fellowship with Christ that you've overcome the world. The power of Christ in you does work in that way and through you. Okay, we also know that we have eternal life. 
That's another very powerful thing that we can be confident of. I mean, knowing that you're going to live forever in the presence of God, that should bring you confidence. Not just that you've overcome the world that we live in now, but that you have an eternity of hope and blessing and bliss in heaven in the presence of God waiting for you. That should make you very confident, and you should be confident of that. Let's start by looking at verses 6 through 9. Now, some of this may be confusing. The language may not make sense to you at first glance. So let's read through it, and then what I want to do is just break it down and help you understand why John spoke the way he did at that time. We read in verse 6, This is the one, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Now understand, John is just basically saying, we know who God is, why he came, and we trust the truth of who Jesus is. But he uses language that can be a little confusing because of the time he's writing in, and some of the language that he uses, some of the idioms he uses, have to do with things that were going on in the church at that time. I think you'll see it if I break it down for you, how it's not really that confusing. But if you don't know some of the particulars, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You see, we know that we have eternal life. That's the theme. But children of God accept the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. That's essentially what he's saying here. Children of God accept the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. And what does the Holy Spirit say about Jesus Christ? We've already read it. He is, as we read here, the Son of God. And It's the Spirit who testifies, and the Spirit is the truth. He he can be trusted, of course. And then he mentions three witnesses, one of which is the Spirit, one of which is water, and one of which, which is blood. And it's God's testimony about his Son, and we can trust it because it is the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the most important point of what was stated there. That everyone would probably agree with and understand. The terms water and blood are where many people get confused. But remember, this is really more about the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. The reason he mentions that he came by water and blood and not by water alone has to do with this group of people, I've mentioned them before, called the Gnostics. There was a Serinthian heresy taught by the Gnostics, and these words, water and blood, pertain to some of the false teachings that were taught by this group. Now, we know that he came by water and blood and not by water alone. That's a truth John states. What does he mean? Well, water is a reference to his baptism, and blood is a reference to his crucifixion. Take a moment and just think that through. Doesn't that make sense? As it relates to Jesus, water is a reference to his baptism, and blood is is a reference to his crucifixion. I think that should make sense to everyone. Now, Christian baptism commemorates his life in us. That's what baptism speaks of, his life in us. Communion commemorates his death 
for us. And when you think about it in the church, we really only have those two rites or rituals or, 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 or traditions. I mean, we were baptized into the faith and we receive communion to remember his sacrifice for us. So remember, water is a reference to his baptism. Blood is a reference to his crucifixion. And these symbols show up in Christian baptism and in communion. So that shouldn't confuse you. So let's just stop there, okay? Remember that we're talking about baptism, Christ's baptism. We're talking about Christ's crucifixion, his death. Now, the reason he uses these words, why does he go through the trouble of saying, you know, the water and the blood and the spirit testify to the truth that Jesus is the son of God? Why, why go to all that trouble? Why even use those figures of the water and the blood? Well, this language is a direct assault against Serinthian heresy. It was taught by the Gnostics, and Serinthius was John's prime antagonist in the city of Ephesus, where John ministered. So this was the man that was referred to subtly in his writings as the spirit of Antichrist, the one who was standing against and in place of Christ, the one who was causing problems in this city of Ephesus was this man, Serinthius, and he was, in fact, the chief proponent of this idea, this specific heresy concerning Jesus Christ. He believed, not John, Serinthus believed, that Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary, not the son of God. He believed he was a great man. He believed that he was just and wise, but only a man. He believed that at his baptism, at Jesus's baptism, the heavenly Christ descended upon him as a dove. So he was just a man until this moment, and again, this is a false teaching, until this moment when the heavenly Christ descended upon him like a dove, like sort of he was possessed by the Spirit of God. And on the eve of his passion, of his death, Serinthus taught that the Christ again left Jesus the man. That's what he taught. And that Jesus died and rose again, but the spiritual Christ did not suffer. See, the idea that Serinthus couldn't get his brain around is that God would become man and suffer as a man, that God would suffer on the cross. So he came up with a doctrine that said, well, this man, Jesus, was born into the world by water. He was baptized. But that's when the Christ came into the world, at his baptism. But he left him before he shed his blood because God couldn't go through that. Only a man could go through that. It's a bizarre teaching, and I only mention it so you'll understand that Serinthus taught that he came, the Christ, came by water, but not by blood. So Serinthus would say he came by water and not by blood, referring to Christ's baptism and his death, but saying that Christ did not really die, the man Jesus died. It's a weird teaching. But this is what Jesus, excuse me, this is what uh, John was dealing with as it relates to Jesus. He was dealing with a false teaching. So the language, water, refers to Christ's baptism, blood to his death, And the point is so that John could say that Jesus was baptized by John, that is John the Baptist, and gave his life on Calvary's cross. So now let's go back over it, all right, with that understanding. And and I sort of want to read it again so you can see that it really isn't that complicated. But the language can be a little confusing if you're not familiar with what John was speaking to in terms of the false teaching. This is the one... They came by water and blood, he would say to someone who said that 
Christ didn't suffer on the cross. He's the one that came by water and blood. That is Jesus Christ. He both was baptized and died on the cross. He did not come by water only. That is, Serenthus, he did not just enter the body of Jesus at his baptism and then leave, but by water and blood. And then he goes on to say it's the Spirit that testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And the Spirit testified that Jesus is the Son of God. When the Spirit came down upon Jesus like a dove, he was testifying that Jesus is the Son of God, not coming down upon Jesus to sort of make him the Christ, which is what Serenthus taught. And he goes on to say, for there are three that testify. That is, these are three testimonies to Christ being the Son of God, God in the flesh. He says, the Spirit, of course, the water, that is his baptism, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. So I think it makes a lot more sense. He goes on to say, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. So it's just important to see that John is essentially saying Christ was born a man, but it was God becoming a man, not a man becoming God and then the God sort of leaving him at some point. Okay? I know that's a little strange to most of us. It sounds like a very weird teaching, but there are all kinds of weird teachings out there. And it explains the language that John uses. Okay. So Christ came by uh, water and blood, as we've said already. He was baptized. He died. And we know he rose again. Amen? Now, we know that God the Holy Spirit testifies to this truth. In fact, think about this with me. Did the Holy Spirit testify to this truth that Jesus is baptism? Yes. He came down upon Jesus like a dove. doesn't say as a dove, like a dove. And the Holy Spirit testified in the early church from the day of Pentecost and throughout the church age. The Holy Spirit has testified to the character and the nature and the identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, the Spirit testifies to this truth in God's Word and continues to testify to it today. And his testimony agrees with the testimony of Christ's baptism and his crucifixion. And the testimony is greater than the testimony of any man because his testimony, his testimony is the testimony of God himself. That's really all John is trying to say. But a lot of people get very confused about the language. Okay, children of God also know that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. They accept the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus, but they also know that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is what John wants us to know in verses 10 through 13. We read, Anyone, John says, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John concludes by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, the Gnostics were named with a word that means to know. Gnostic, know. It's the Greek word for knowing or know-it-all, if you will. And John is combating that by saying, you know that you have eternal life. They don't know what they're talking about, but you know God, and you know that you have eternal life in Christ. So, understand the language, understand why he's speaking this way, but let's look at the truth of what he said. You have eternal life 
if you have the son. Can I hear an amen? If you don't have the son, you don't have life. It's that simple. This is why sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel with people, they'll suggest, sometimes they'll suggest that you don't need to have Jesus to have eternal life. And I often will show them that verse. You, you, there is no other way by which a man can come to God. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And here it's stated again, whoever has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, you do not have eternal life. We know that the testimony of the Holy Spirit is true. We know it through faith in Christ. And those that believe that Jesus is the Christ have eternal life. Those that don't believe that Jesus is the Christ do not have it. It's important to make that distinction. I think for a long time in the church, we've sort of taken a wishful thinking approach to the gospel. Well, I can't imagine my grandmother going to hell. She's such a nice woman. She goes to church. She doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I'm sure God will let her into heaven. Sometimes we take an approach where it's like we tell ourselves what we want to believe and what we want to see and want to hear, but we don't go to the Word of God where the Spirit tells us, you got Jesus, you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you have eternal life. You're not, you don't. It's that simple. And it's hard to be that direct with people sometimes, but John is being direct because don't think for a minute that we can enter into the presence of God apart from a personal relationship in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, rose again on the third day, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. There wasn't a time where the man Jesus wasn't the God, the Son of God, Jesus. Don't believe that for a minute. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate in human flesh. You cannot have eternal life apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Don't think you can. You need to know Jesus. And John's purpose in writing this epistle in verse 13 is that they and we may know that we have eternal life. Do you know you have eternal life? Say amen. If you got Jesus, you have eternal life. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone confuse you. That is the confidence that we have in our fellowship with Christ. One last thing I want to deal with this evening, and then we'll finish up chapter 5 next week, because there's a lot in this chapter, especially when we get into the next section. But for now, I just sort of want to uh, start this section, which has to do with having access to God, the confidence that we have in having access to God. I just want to talk about this because I think if you know that you have eternal life, if you know Jesus, if you know the things that we've already shared here and that John has testified to are true, then you know that you have access to God. You don't have to wait till you die and go to heaven to have access to God's presence. You and I, we have access to God now on earth in heaven. And it's so important that we know this because there are times when our world is so crazy and we think, oh my goodness, all is lost. And yet you and I, we through prayer and worship and praise can enter the presence of God and find peace in his presence, help in our time of need. And if you're not in praise and worship, which is a form of prayer, if you're not in prayer and in fellowship with Christ and his children, you're missing out on the one real true comfort you can find in this crazy world, fellowship in Christ. What saddens me the most is the devil is slick. He is shrewd. He knew that one of the best ways to weaken you and to weaken the church was to do something to prevent you from experiencing fellowship in Christ. And so over the last year and a half, there have been many obstacles to greeting and meeting one another in fellowship. 
There have been many restrictions and barriers to experiencing what it is that will actually keep us in the love of God. That is, our faith growing and our heart's desire to know Jesus. All you have to do if you really want to flounder, if you really want to fall in your walk and and in your faith, is just stop fellowshipping with fellowshipping with Christ, stop fellowshipping with one another, and I guarantee within a very short period of time, you will fall into sin and your relationship with God will suffer. I'm not saying you won't be a Christian. I'm just saying you probably won't be acting like one. And you probably won't be experiencing the fruit of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit in your life. Instead of having love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you're going to have anger, frustration, all of the sins that come into a life that's not filled with the Holy Spirit. See, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You and I, we need to be in the presence of God, worshiping him with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. And yes, you can do that on your own. Yes, you can. But that's why we gather together, to worship God together. And to love your neighbor as yourself, which requires you at least being in the presence of your neighbor. (laughs) That is your brothers and sisters in Christ and others. So what I think the world, the devil, and his demons have effectively tried to do, not successfully, but effectively tried to do, and in some cases where they were more effective than others, is try to keep us from experiencing the fellowship in Christ with Christ and with one another that actually keeps us on the straight and narrow, that actually fills us with his spirit and encourages us in his word. You get Christians out of fellowship, they become easy targets for the devil, the world, and their own flesh. And so we have access to God. I want you to know this. Even if we couldn't gather, you still have access to God. That's no excuse. But this is so important to us. We have access to God. We must come together for fellowship in him if we're going to grow in our faith. Look at verses 14 through 15. That's all we're going to look at for the rest of this evening. There's a lot here. This is the confidence. Remember, we're talking about the confidence in our fellowship. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Does that sound like confidence to you? Because the word confidence is even used in that section. That's the confidence that you should have in approaching the throne of God. When you are prayerless, You're taking that confidence and you're disregarding it. When you don't pray, when you don't worship, when you don't gather for fellowship with others, when you don't exercise the Christian fundamentals of the faith, you are the study of God's word, serving others. When you don't do those things, you're taking that confidence and you're putting it aside as if you don't have that confidence. You're neglecting it, disregarding it, not valuing it at all. And we saw so much of that over the last year or so, unfortunately even within the church. Now, we know that we can approach God and that he hears our prayers. We know that our prayers will be answered, but according to his will. That's the point of what this is saying here in these two verses. We know that our prayers as children of God will be answered, but that they'll be answered according to his will. Now, we can approach God. We know he hears our prayers. What we've read there in the first part of verse 14 is that we are encouraged to confidently approach his throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that very thing. Approach the throne of grace with, with boldness, with confidence, 
uh, looking for help in your time of need. We are called to do that. Because God's grace is expressed through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you're in Christ, you can experience God's grace expressed in Jesus. And we all need to experience the throne of grace in prayer. We all need to come to him knowing we're accepted in his son, Jesus. Our confidence is based in the finished, can I hear an amen, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. There need not be any more work on your part to earn a place in the presence of God. You can come into the throne of grace. You can come before that throne confidently with boldness because Christ did it all. He paid it all. It is finished. Amen. We know he came as a man, lived a perfect, sinless life before God. He gave his life as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. And then he rose again, proving that we can receive new life in him. All of this you can be confident of. That's why John is writing it. So you'll know you have eternal life. And God's mercy and grace is available to us, but only through Jesus, as we've already seen. Now think about this with me. Jesus is sympathetic to our needs. Why? Because he's shared in our necessities. He knows what it is to have need. He's lived. The God-man has lived as a man. He can be sympathetic. And he's merciful toward us, having fully experienced our condition. He knows what it is to be a man, a human being. So he's merciful toward us, and he's able to help us, having suffered through many of the same problems that you and I experience. That's the God we serve. And we're encouraged to confidently enter the most holy place, as Hebrews 10, verse 19 tells us. Confidently enter that holy place. Jesus' sacrifice gives us confidence in God's presence. His intercession before the throne of God grants us access to God's presence. And we can have a relationship with God, but only through faith in Christ. That's what John wants us to understand. Now, this bit about asking anything according to his will. Do you know? Because the scripture tells us we know that we can ask anything according to his will and he will do it. Do you know that? Say amen. You know that? According to his will. We have confidence before God because our, or, our obedience to his word through faith puts us in a place where we can confidently ask God to meet our needs and know that according to his will, he will do that very thing. It's so important, you know, our hearts do not and cannot condemn us in God's presence. I'm going to go back to some of the things we learned along the way here. One of the things we read uh, when we were in chapter 3 of this same book about this topic of asking for something according to his will and, doing, and him doing it. If you go to, and now uh, you can just, on the next page, in chapter 3, verse 22, it says... And, Uh, Well, actually, verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. So that is what John said in a previous chapter. That tells us we do have confidence. And again, because of our obedience to his word by faith. And our hearts do not and cannot condemn us in God's presence. They won't because God is greater than our hearts. And we receive anything we ask of him, but only as we obey his word according to his will. So that's the first thing that we see here. There's another thing that John said, and it's in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 7. There we learn this. He said, if you remain in me, 
This is what Jesus said. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. So you see, you are encouraged to ask and that according to God's will, he will grant your request. We're encouraged to remain in Jesus and have his words remain in us. By the way, how is his word going to remain in you if you're not studying it? Of course, we need to study the word of God. We can ask whatever we desire because our desires will be his desires. We receive anything we ask of him as we show ourselves to be his disciples. You see, there are conditions on, oh, ask God for whatever you want. He's going to give you. That's not the what we're reading here. That's not the truth of what we read. Ask according to his will, and we know God will do it. So, we are encouraged to ask, but to ask in Jesus' name and for God's glory. In that same section or same book of uh, John's gospel, but in the previous chapter that we were just in, chapter 14, this is what we read, verses 13 and 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So now what does it mean, in my name? Oh, I want a car in Jesus' name, like abracadabra, hocus pocus. No, in his name has to do with according to his will and for his glory. He will not do something that violates his name or doesn't glorify him. He will not respond to the prayers that we utter if they defy his sovereign will over our lives. Everything has to be submitted to God. Or have we forgotten the example of Jesus when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Your will be done, right? Not my will. Nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. And how about how he taught us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He surrendered his will and prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Brothers and sisters, I'll leave you with this thought. Prayer is not asking God for what we want, but for what he wants. I'm going to repeat that. Prayer is not asking God for what we want. It's asking God for what he wants. The only true prayer is your will be done. Our request in prayer is for the grace to accept his will and the strength to obey it. It's just that simple. In closing, in verse 15, we know that God answers our prayers by giving to us what we've requested of him, it says, and I know that's true. So, God will always answer a prayer that is prayed according to his will. He'll say no to those requests that are not according to his will, and he'll say wait to those requested or not according to his timing. But he'll say yes to those requested or according to his will and his timing. God always answers prayer. But sometimes it's no, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's wait. And God will meet our needs if we rely on him and not on ourselves. You have to rely on God. He's the one that's going to meet your needs. By the way, sinful, selfish desires are the source of all of our relational conflicts. Every conflict you have or will have in your life comes down to sinful, selfish desires, either on the part of another person or your own sinful, selfish desires. 
selfish motives are the source of all of our unfulfilled desires and unanswered prayers. So submitting our hearts to God is what prayer is really all about. You don't need to tell God what you want or you want him to do. What you need to do in prayer is submit your heart to God and to his will. Brothers and sisters, God knows our needs even before we ask. Amen? Amen? And he promises to provide for our needs, but not our wants. And he calls us to ask him since he knows what would be best for each and every one of us. Brothers and sisters, we have to trust God with our request and know that according to his will and in his name, he'll respond to every prayer according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this word. And we just, again, pray that you'd be with us this evening. Continue to encourage us in your word that we might live for you according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.